0: is from Psalm 24. it be uh, gone next week, and so I wanted to finish this section of the Psalms first. Um, Psalm 24 is on page 541. In your pew Bibles, um, you recall this section of the Psalter, Psalms 15 through 24, forms uh, sort of a sub-collection in book one of the Psalms that is enveloped by these two Psalms, Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, that both ask the question, Who can ascend into God's holy presence? So that's the question that we're dealing with as we read Psalm 24, and like in Psalm 15, we find a standard that is simply too difficult for any of us to meet. Read with me Psalm 24, A Psalm of David. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. as I said, this psalm asks the same question as Psalm 15. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who can stand in his holy place? And that's the question of verse 3, which of course flows out of that, that introductory statement of verses 1 and 2 about the greatness and majesty of God the one to whom all things belong. It says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and all those who dwell in it. It is ascribing glory to God as the creator of everything, for he founded the earth upon the seas, it says, and he established it upon the rivers. All of it is his. Now, this psalm is declaring the very same thing that we confess at the beginning of the Apostles' Creed, and we say, I believe in God the Father, creator of the heavens and the earth. As we confess in Lord's Day 9, created heaven and earth and everything in them and still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence. It's against this backdrop of, of almighty God's power and majesty, and, and verse 3, his holiness that the question is then asked, how can I dwell in his presence? How can I dwell in the presence of this majestic God as we sang before the service from Psalm 8, set his glory above the heavens? How can I know him? And how can I dwell with him? How can I have communion with him? How can I enter into his presence? That's the concern of Psalm 24, which, which really ought to be the, the concern of, of all of us, of, of all God's creatures. If, if he is the one who made us and, and we as human beings created in his image are made for fellowship with him, then how can I dwell in his presence? How can I ascend this holy hill where God dwells? And this, of course, is not ultimately talking about the temple or, or the tabernacle, but as we know from the book of Hebrews, those things are but earthly pictures of the true dwelling place of God in heaven. And so it's asking, is it possible for me to have fellowship with the God who dwells in heaven? This is the most important question we could ever ask. What does God require of me if I would dwell with him in heaven? What kind of person will God admit into his heavenly temple? The answer that the psalmist gives is that you must be holy as the Lord your God is holy. J.C. Ryle, in his classic book on holiness, says, Heaven is a holy place. The Lord of heaven is a holy being. The angels are holy creatures. Holiness is written on everything in heaven. And so we must be holy if we would ascend the hill of the Lord. That's the point of verses 4 and 5. After verses uh, 1 and 2 introduce this majestic God, and then verse 3 states his holiness and asks, how can we enter into his holy presence? Verses 4 and 5 say you must be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And the reason for this, of course, is because we would not be able to stand the the glowing brightness of his holy presence in our sin. In fact, remember in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is given this vision of of the holy God dwelling in his heavenly temple, he, he says, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people. Of unclean lips. He, he recognized that the, the absolute uh, holiness of God required of him holiness in character. He recognized the absolute and utter need of those who dwell in the presence of such a holy God to be holy themselves for their own good, lest his holiness, as it did Nadab and Abihu, in Leviticus chapter 12, consume them in their error. Hebrews chapter 12 says the th- same thing. He is a, a holy God. And so we must be holy if we would dwell in the presence of this holy God, lest his holiness consume us in our sin. And so as, as David goes on to, to describe this, he notes four aspects of, of the holiness that God requires. He, he mentions cleanness of hands He speaks of of pureness of heart of trueness of tongue and all of this proceeds from a soul that does not lift itself up to what is false notice first the cleanness of hands he who has clean hands it says in verse 4 David is here speaking about not using our hands to commit sin Boys and girls, he's, he's talking about not using our hands to, to steal things that don't belong to us. He's talking about not using our hands to, to commit violence against our, our siblings. He's talking about not using our, our hands to, to type out words of anger, to click images that we should not click. By doing those things, our, our hands become stained with sin, unfit to enter into God's presence. For every angry word that you have typed, every illicit image that you have clicked, every time you've hit your sibling, your hands become unclean, and their sinfulness makes you unfit to enter into God's presence. It's a very, very, very simple point of that, that first part of verse 4. And yet David doesn't stop there. He goes on, it's not just our hands... But but if any of us think that, that we're okay and have somehow passed that, that first part of the test, uh, David next says that we must also have pureness of heart. And of course, this gets below the external behavior to the very thoughts and, and feelings that live inside of us. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus said that anyone who hates his brother in his heart is guilty of murder or anyone who lusts after a fellow image bearer is guilty of adultery. And and so it's not enough simply to not have done certain things externally. Or or you could, on the flip side, say it's not enough simply to have done certain things externally, to to go to church and and check the box, to do this and, and check the box. But God is concerned with our hearts. That's why every week when we read the law, It ends with that 10th commandment about not even coveting or desiring that which we ought not to desire. And we rightly confess in Lord's Day 44 on the 10th commandment that not even the slightest desire or thought that is contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. But our hearts must be pure. They, They must be undivided in their loyalty. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The flip side of which is is that the impure in heart shall not see him. That's what David is saying in verse four. He will not allow us to feel good about our external box checking, but he calls us to examine our hearts and see what lives inside of them and how that in itself renders us unfit to stand before heaven's holiness. As do the words that we speak which Jesus says in Matthew 15, uh, flow out of our hearts. He says out of, of the mouth comes the overflow of the heart. And so because our hearts are impure, in fact, Jeremiah seventeen nine says that they are deceitful and wicked above all things, because that's the case, our words are too. And so we tell lies. We tell half-truths. We exaggerate to make ourselves look better or we leave out details to make our, our case look not so bad. We omit part of the truth and, and mislead and then hair split to make ourselves and others think we didn't, we didn't technically lie. And the psalmist is here reminding us that that has no place among us. You just, just read through the psalms and see how much God hates lying and deceit. We, we trick ourselves into thinking that it's, it's just a little white lie, that it's not that big a deal. God says in, in Psalm 5, He destroys those who speak lies and abhors the deceitful man. He says the same thing in Psalm 7 about those who are pregnant with mischief and give birth to lies. Their mischief will return on their head and, and descend on their skull. He says in Psalm 12, of those who utter lies and flatter with their lips, speaking with a double heart, saying one thing and and meaning another, that God will cut off their lips and their tongues that make great boasts. Lying in the Psalms is no small thing. In fact, you might have noticed, we we heard that in our consecutive psalm reading from Psalm 101. No one who practices deceit or utter lies shall dwell in my house or continue before my eyes, says the Davidic king. That they will not dwell in the king's city. That's how the psalm ended. Likewise, that's, that's actually how the Bible ends. Revelation 21 says of that heavenly city that there will be no liars in it. It's the same thing that we see in psalms like this or in psalms like the one that we read earlier or in psalms like Psalm 15 where three times in just a matter of five verses it says that you must speak the truth in your heart, you must not slander with your tongue, you must not break a vow failing to keep your word. David and and the spirit of Christ who speaks through him is calling us to be people of truth. And the reason for that is because God himself is truth, So no lying or deceit may dwell in his presence. You must have cleanness of hands, pureness of heart, and trueness of tongue, all of which proceeds from a soul that does not lift itself up to what is false. If you're wondering what exactly that means, if you just look at the very next psalm, Psalm 25, Verses 1 and 2, it says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. It's, it's telling us that to lift your soul up to something means to put your trust in it. You'd say to worship it. And so the heart that's pure, the tongue that's true, the hands that are clean belong to the soul that doesn't lift itself up to what is false, or as the New King James says, doesn't lift itself up to an idol. Believing the lie that anything other than God will be able to satisfy. Commentator James Hamilton explains that that this phrase means literally to, to not lift your soul up to emptiness. Directing your desire towards something that cannot satisfy He says, the man worthy of ascending God's holy hill doesn't desire what should not be desired and does not worship what is not worthy. He doesn't seek satisfaction where there is none to be found and doesn't try to find joy from what only brings pain. That's why his hands are clean and his tongue is true and his heart is pure because he doesn't trust in in the falsehood that true satisfaction and peace will come from telling a lie. Withholding the, the truth about ourselves to others. You recognize that's, that's what we're doing when, when we tell a lie. We're, we're worshiping an idol. We're believing that true peace, true happiness, true satisfaction, and, and shalom will come from that person not knowing the truth about me. You can the same thing about the violence that we commit or, or the images. That we click when we do these things, we we do it because we think that they will bring us satisfaction. Tim Keller in his, his book Counterfeit Gods years ago spoke of how we oftentimes tend to focus on the external sins that we commit, but we need to look below the surface to not just the surface idols, but the heart idols that lie beneath the surface idols and to see how when we do these things, we are doing them because we have misplaced our worship, looking to these other things to do for us what only God can do. We sin because, as Calvin said, our hearts or our souls are idol-making factories. And because of that, we are not fit to ascend God's holy hill. That's the basic message of verse four, that those who do not meet this holy standard may not enter God's holy heaven. If you don't have clean hands and a pure heart, trueness of of tongue, and you worship what is false... As Jeremiah chapter 2 says, you, you uh, go to those broken cisterns to drink from them even as the water is falling out of the bottom rather than coming to the fount of living water, God himself, to find true satisfaction. If that's you, then the answer to the question of verse 3, who may ascend God's holy hill? The answer is not you. Heaven's holiness will not admit you In your sin. And you will not receive the righteous verdict from God of verse 5. You will not seek his face and stand in his presence, as it says in verse 6. You simply can't. And yet, amazingly, the psalm doesn't end there. But having heard about heaven's holiness, after that, that pause of, of the say law after verse six, remember that's, that's what the say law is suggesting. It's, it's suggesting a, a, an opportunity for a moment of, of reflection, a brief pause. After the pause of that say law after verse six comes heaven's announcement. Where even though the the only one who can receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation is the one with clean hands and a pure heart and a true tongue and a soul that does not lift itself up to what is false, and even though none of us meet that standard, somehow as we come to verse 7, heaven makes the announcement that its gates are to be lifted says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Someone is entering in. And we're left to wonder, who could it be? Who is this one who has clean hands? Who is this one with a pure heart, unstained by sin? Who is this one who only speaks truth and who has never lifted up his soul to what is false, not even once? And they were told, it's the king. The same king that we met in, in Psalms 1 and 2, who at this point in the Psalter has just been mentioned in Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, the king of glory about whom this whole collection of Psalms is written. Who does have clean hands. Just, just read Psalm 18. He says, according to the cleanness of my hands, God rewards me. Remember, that's a a messianic psalm, Psalm 18, twice applied by the New Testament authors to Christ himself, but he says there two times, God rewards me according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Or you could look at Psalm 7, with the Davidic king there says, there is no wrong in my hands. In fact, he so refused to use his hands to sin that that rather than taking them up against his persecutors, in Psalm 22, he lets them be pierced. Love, these are the cleanest hands there ever were. Hebrews 4.15, holy, harmless, and undefiled, used not to serve himself, but to serve us. Likewise, his heart was pure. That's been the consistent testimony of the Psalms. He delights in God's law and meditates on it day and night, so that instead of sinning, he is rightly angered. For instance, in Psalm four, it says he ponders in his heart; that it is silent. He said to be upright in heart, Psalm 7. Psalm 11, his heart instructs him in the night. In Psalm 16, God can try his heart and visit him by night in Psalm 17 and will find nothing. But this king, in Psalm 19, meditates on God's precepts, which it says rejoice his heart so that the meditation of his heart is acceptable in God's sight. This is what the Psalms thus far have said about the heart of God's messianic king. He not only has clean hands that do not sin outwardly, but his right actions flow from a heart that loves and meditates on God's word. Likewise, his lips and his tongue are true. He detests lying lips in Psalm 12 and prays that God would cut them off. He devotes himself in Psalm 15 to not slandering with his tongue or breaking a vow, but says in Psalm 17 that his lips are free from deceit. And all of this because he doesn't lift his soul up to what is false, trusting in anything other than his Father and his good shepherd in heaven. Virtually every one of the Psalms is a confession that God is his refuge. Virtually every one of the psalms is an exercise in in lifting up his soul, not to what is false, but to God alone, who is his portion and his cup, Psalm 16, who he calls upon, Psalm 17, and says, you are my rock and my refuge, Psalm 18, my shield and the horn of my salvation, in whom he has trusted, Psalm 22, from his mother's breast, saying in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... I will fear no evil, for you are with me. This king lifts up his soul to the Lord and entrusts himself to God alone. The messianic king to whom this whole collection of Psalms points, and especially this sub collection of Psalms 15 through 24, is the one who alone meets these requirements. And therefore, verse 5 receives blessing from the Lord and righteousness or justification from the God of his salvation. You realize that's what the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ are. They are God's justification, his declaring righteous, his son. First Timothy 3.16, Paul says, Christ was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit, seen by the angels, and preached among the Gentiles. He speaks of Christ's resurrection, ascension as his justification, his vindication, God declaring him righteous. Gerhardus Voss called it God's de facto declaration of Christ being just. And so he is the one who's able to enter God's holy heaven and receive blessing from him, verse five. As it says in Matthew five, because his heart is pure, He will see God. And so the everlasting doors of God's eternal dwelling place will open, verse 7, because Christ the King was holy, harmless, and undefiled. Ryle said, without holiness on earth, we shall not be prepared for heaven. Christ was prepared. And so enters in through those ancient or everlasting doors, which again tells us this is is more than just the temple or the tabernacle. These um, everlasting doors point to that eternal celestial habitation, and Christ is the one who will enter. He is the singular fulfillment of this psalm. That's why in verses 4 and 5, it's a singular pronoun that's used. It doesn't say those with clean hands and a pure heart, they'll receive blessing from the Lord, but he... Masculine, singular, just like Psalm 15 and just like Psalm 1. These psalms were only ever about one man. The ultimate Davidic king who delighted in God's law, walked uprightly and therefore is qualified to dwell in God's holy heaven. He will enter in. That's what we see in verses 7 through 10. We're having beheld heaven's holiness And having then heard heaven's announcement, now we come to heaven's king in all his glory. It says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, so that the king of glory may come in. And then it asks us, who is this king of glory who's ascending in triumph? It's the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This righteous king is, is amazingly identified with God himself. Now entering back into heaven, having, having taken on human flesh, human hands, as we see at the beginning of this psalm, now assuming his throne in heaven. And as he does, he is welcomed in with shouts of triumph. Spurgeon says in these verses, we, we hear the angels reverently escort him to the gates of heaven. This, in some ways, is kind of the flip side of what we read 10 days ago on Ascension Day from the book of Acts. Uh, There, we we saw Christ departing uh, from earth to heaven, but now we we hear and, and see him arrive in heaven. What no man witnessed, but scripture here records for us prophetically to show us the glory of this one who heaven welcomes with shouts of praise. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. As we sang a few moments ago, he has conquered death and sin. The divine warrior has returned and he is the victor. Or as we'll sing just... Just after this sermon, Christopher Wordsworth says, another rendition of, of this psalm, See the conqueror mounts in triumph. See the king in royal state, riding on the clouds his chariot to his heavenly palace gate. Who is this that comes in glory, trumpet sound with jubilee, lord of battles, lord of armies? He has gained the victory. He who on the cross did suffer, he who from the grave arose, he has conquered sin and Satan, he by death has beat his foes. Do you hear how the church in the history of its hymnody has rightly understood this psalm and verse 8 in particular is speaking of Christ's victory over Satan, sin and death through dying at the cross and rising up to heaven. He fought a bitter war against sin at the cost of his own life but in his death defeated death in Hebrews or Colossians 2, uh, disarmed Satan and all his demonic powers, making an open spectacle of them at the cross. And now he returns a victor and is welcomed with shouts of praise. The blood of conflict still fresh upon him takes his seat on the heavenly throne. The angels greet him with shouts of praise as we read in Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain in order that he might receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Lamb who was slain now ascends to take his seat on his heavenly throne while all his subjects pay homage. This is the king of Psalm 20 who fought a great battle on the day of his affliction, now being crowned with Psalm 21's crown of fine gold. This is the man of war from Psalm 22 who gave his own life in the battle, now raised up to glory a victor, ritually demonstrating that he has conquered, strong and mighty, mighty in battle. God is now enthroning him as king, Overall, giving him all authority in heaven and on earth. This is picturing for us the ascension and enthronement of our King who passed through the valley of death's shadow as we saw this morning and now enters in to dwell in God's house forever. And this, by the way, is another reason to see Psalm 23 messianically because it's right next to Psalm 24 where only one man can enter God's house the King of glory. And yet, as we saw this morning, the beauty of the gospel, the reason we call it good news is that by faith union with him, what is true of him is true of us. What is true of the king is true of of his people. And so, even though, in, or even as in Psalm 23, Christ is the lead sheep who, who passes through the valley and then becomes our shepherd who, who takes us by the hand to lead us through also into the very house of God forever, so in Psalm 24, even though we are not righteous enough to enter in ourselves, he goes there for us to take us there with him. In fact, you might have noticed that in our song of. of uh, Preparation, just before we heard the sermon, those very last words that we sung spoke of him as the first fruits of our race, now in heaven. So that's the last thing we want to consider this afternoon, not just heaven's kings, but heaven's heirs, this time in the plural. For what is it that happens when Jesus goes into heaven to take his seat? Well, in Psalm 2, It tells us that God says to him, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations. I will make them your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. saw the same thing last week from Psalm 22. What is it that happens when Jesus ascends into heaven? His Father gives the Son the nations. So that now the earth that is the Lord's and all who dwell in it of verse 1 belong to him, given to him by his Father. Which is why even though only one man, that, that one man in the masculine singular, even though only one man is righteous enough to enter in, as we see in verses 4 and 5, what do we see by the time we come to verse 6 but a whole generation seeking God's face and entering into his blessed presence? Just that shift from the singular he of verses 4 and 5 to the whole generation of verse 6. Which is actually duplicated in in verse 10 where the king there is not just referred to as the Lord mighty in battle but, but this time the Lord of hosts. Which seems to picture him as a great king with rank upon rank of warriors behind him. When it asks that question two times, who is this king of glory? That that first shout in verse 8 identifies him as the mighty victor alone, but verse 10 says Spurgeon identifies him at the front of his people. Meaning this psalm of ascent is not just for him, but for us. Andrew Bonar said his fellow saints with the king of glory in whose train we also expect to enter through the everlasting gates. This psalm describes our mode of joining his royal procession and so passing on to glory with the king. As it fares with the messianic king, so it fares with his people. That's why Lord's Day 18 says of Christ's ascension... When I ask that question, why is this a comfort to you? It says that He is there for us, that He has ascended there to heaven as a sure pledge, that He will take us, His members, to be there with Him. He is our head. And we see something of that in this psalm, where He enters in, yes, to take the throne, but also that human flesh might make its way into heaven as, as the first fruits of our race. On Church Father, I'm sad that His ascension makes a pathway for us so that in due time He might come again in glory to take us up with Him. His ascension is our elevation where human flesh penetrates the heights of heaven. And so, you see how wonderfully this answers the question of verse 3? We're after this, this majestic view of, of the holiness of our creator. It asks, who may enter into his holy heaven? Those with clean hands, pure heart, true tongue, that is Christ. But also all who are united to him by faith, joined to their head and king as faithful subjects of his army, given his righteousness, verse 5, as a gift that they may be among that generation of, verse 6, who seek God's face and one day, verse 10, will enter into the gates of that city with their heavenly king. And what enables us to do this is because even though only his hands were clean. He allowed them to be pierced for us, even though his tongue was nothing but true. In fact, in John fourteen six, he says that he himself is truth. Even though that was the case, he was called and, and condemned a liar and a blasphemer, though his heart was pure. He bore the stench of our sin of the cross. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5 says, became sin for us so that now, united to him by faith, we might be reckoned as righteous in Christ our champion, lifted up to heavenly places which his ascension guarantees. And so even though you you have neither clean hands nor a pure heart, the psalm calls us to look to Christ to look to the one who has climbed the holy hill, the one who has entered as the foreigner of those who trust him and calls us to follow his footsteps and trust in his merit, the one who rides triumphantly into heaven, believing that you will too if you trust in him. If you trust in his obedience by which he becomes the righteous one, verse 4. If you trust in his death by which he becomes the victor of verse 8 if you trust in God's declaration of him as righteous in his resurrection and ascent into glory which is yours too by faith who may ascend God's holy hill Christ the king and all who are righteous in him by faith who confess their inability to meet that standard of verse 4 but believe that Christ did that he was stricken, Psalm 22, for your transgressions and mine then raised up to heavenly heights for you. The promise of the gospel is that if you believe that by faith, then Psalm 24 is not just a psalm of Christ's ascent, but of yours too and mine, in him and with him by faith. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for this psalm that in it we see not just the path of Christ, the righteous one to heavenly glory, but ours too as we trust in his merit and cling to him by faith. We pray that each one here would, and that you would make our hearts glad as we've beheld the glory of the gospel, and that having beheld the righteous character of Christ and the immeasurable gift of union with him, we pray that you would also conform us more and more to his righteous character. That you would make us to love the truth and hate falsehood, To have clean hands and a pure heart and not to lift ourselves up to to idols that cannot satisfy. We pray by your spirit you'd make us to be so satisfied in him that we do not look to these lesser things we pray that as we have beheld your grace in your son this afternoon, as we have beheld his beauty, that you would use that very same thing to make us see that he alone is the only one who can satisfy. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, that having beheld his glory, your glory in the face of your son, that you would even transform us from one degree of glory to to the next that having beheld his glory we might be made more like him that you would help us having caught a, a glimpse of the crucified now risen and ascended king the king of glory to the walk in holiness with the spirit of the ascended Christ in us and he poured out for us he ascended into heaven, not only being given to the nations, but then pouring out his spirit so that those nations might come to him. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus'